a common objection to Christianity that is raised by the unbelieving world is, is really the question, why does God not do more? Why does God not do more? You know, people maybe uh, see on their TV screens scenes of a uh, uh, natural disaster or something like that. You see it on you and, and, and they say, well, why is God not in action there? Why is God not doing more? Now, tonight, instead of answering that question, what I want us to consider is the fact that in a spiritual sense, actually, you and I, we very often ask that same question. Uh, don't we? Do you see what I mean? Like we ask ourselves, spiritually speaking, in London, why is God not doing more? Do we ask that? Um, we look at the Old Testament, and what do we see? We see a God in action, a God who's operative. And then we look at the New Testament, what do we see? We see the same thing. Then we sort of think about the early church. What do we see? God in action. We think about the Reformation Church. What do we see? We see the God in action. We think about maybe Britain even a few generations ago or guys like Spurgeon and these sorts of names. You know, and we think, wow, you know, God was in action. He was operative. And then we think about today. And we think about this country and then we think about the city. And we think about this church. And maybe we're asking, well, okay, where is God And why is God not doing more? Well, this evening we turn here to what is really the beginning of the end of the book of uh, Zechariah. It's almost like Zechariah is in here tonight and he sent us, and in conclusion. And in this conclusion, what we see, I'm sure you noticed that when Paul was reading this out, there is this repeated Refrain, this little phrase, did you notice it? Time and time again, Zechariah says, and on that day, and on that day, and on that day. And so we're sort of reading this and we're thinking, okay, well, wait a minute, what, what day is that that he's talking about? What is he looking at here? I mean, is it the day that Christ shall come again? Well, actually, no. It doesn't seem to be that. What Zechariah seems to be looking forward to is the time between Christ's first and second coming. Between the cross and the parousia. So do you see what that means? Here tonight, Zechariah is looking forward to London City Presbyterian Church. Tonight here, he is showing us what God is doing, but what God is doing today. So, here's the plan. I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at Zechariah. Okay, let's uh, bow together. Father God, we are so conscious, especially when we turn to uh, portions of scripture like this, an Old Testament prophecy, of how reliant we all are on the Holy Spirit. And so we ask you tonight, quite simply for a work of the Holy Spirit in this place. We ask for your grace. We ask to hear your voice. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first of all, let's consider uh, the fact that we see here that God is bringing us to victory. Okay, God is bringing us to victory. 
Now, I'm, I'm for one, I'm kind of glad uh, that the book of Zechariah didn't finish last week. And at the end of chapter 11, and you'll see why if you were here, you'll remember why if you were here last week, uh, the end of chapter 11 was kind of downbeat, wasn't it? Remember that? There was a sort of warning from God about the dangers of following wicked leadership and wicked ships. Really kind of downbeat. Well, what we've got tonight, what we're dealing with tonight is much more sort of uplifting and positive. Now, here's the thing. I say this an awful lot. In fact, I say this every Sunday. I really mean it. Um, I would ask that if you've got a Bible, that you have it open. Because when we're thinking about, I know I say that every week, but here, if we're thinking about this victory and this deliverance that, that God is speaking about here, we really need to look at these verses. Okay. So, f- First of all, let us know what it is that the people are delivered from here. Well, if you look at Scripture, you see that first section that we've got? So it's verse 1 to 9. It depicts an incredibly uh, violent scene. And I'm sort of going over it again the last couple of days. And, and, and really, it's remarkable in light of what we've seen in Paris. Because what we're dealing with tonight is a city that is under attack. That's what we're looking at here in this first section. And I wonder if you see what I mean. Let's do this. Let's look at the verses. Look at verse 2. What you've got in verse 2 is an attempted siege on a city. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. Then follow me into verse 3. What else have you got? So you've got an attempted siege In verse 3, you've got an attempted sort of ransacking of the city. Do you see what God says there? He has to make the city like an immovable rock, is what he says. Because people are trying to steal away. People are trying to ransack Jerusalem. So you've got an attempted siege. You've got an attempted ransacking. Keep going. Look at verse 4. You've got an attempted cavalry charge against the city. Do you see that? God has to blind the horses. He has to blind the riders of all these people that are attacking the city. So do you see the sort of overall picture here? It's like a sort of 1960s sort of western or something like that, isn't it? You know, the goodies are bunked down in the town and the baddies are sort of wave after wave of attacks. That sort of chaos, you know, it's that sort of violence that we're dealing with here. Okay. Let's look at how it is that the people of God are delivered here. Now, what does God do in that section? What does he do? Like, does he rain down fire from heaven and burn up all the enemies? Does he send out the angel of the Lord with a sword on horseback? Is that what you've got? No, it's not. I mean, look at verse 2 again. He says, I am going to make Jerusalem, a cup that is going to send these people reeling. Then verse 3 says, all who try to move my people, Jerusalem, what will happen to them? They touch Jerusalem, they will injure themselves on Jerusalem. And then if you look at verse 6, listen to this. He says, I make the leaders of Judah like a flaming torch among the sheep. So do you see, it's not fire. It's not the angel of the Lord. Who is it? What does God do? He says, I am going to deliver my people. I'm going to win this victory, but I'm going to do it through my people. 
I'm going to use my people. I'm going to use Jerusalem. Now, a couple of years ago, um, I was on holiday with my family. And what always happens on holiday happens. And that is that whenever I'm on holiday, my car breaks down, you know. And it happened again. And I was like, okay, it's fine. You know, don't worry. Um, I'm the sort of guy that takes absolutely everything away on holiday. So I knew I had a toolbox in the boot. I always, always, always take some tools with me in the car. So like, don't worry. Sent a cast with my wife. Don't worry, it's fine. Get out, go into the boot. I always take a toolbox with me. Unpack everything. Go in. Read. Oh no, I've forgotten the toolbox, you know. And so there's me standing in the rain. <laughs> and all I could find to fix my car, wait for this, a roll of sellotape and two Allen keys. <laughs> and I was thinking, I remember thinking to myself as the rain came down, I remember thinking, wrong tools for the job, man, you know. Wrong tools for the job. Isn't that what we're thinking here, though? Isn't it? I mean, God here is saying that he is going to overpower all of the nations that stand against his people. And what is he using for that? Jerusalem? Jerusalem? I mean, wrong tools for the job. Jerusalem's weak. Remember last week, Jerusalem is unfaithful, isn't she? Jerusalem is vulnerable. She's small. Wrong tools for the job. So we've got to ask here, third question, how does God do this? Well, what we see in these verses is that God promises to strengthen his people. I want you to hear that. He promises to strengthen his people. Verse 5, you've got the people and they are just proclaiming and praising God. Why? Because he has sent his strength to them. And then I'm going to ask you, I know there's a lot of verses here, but I'm going to ask you to look at verse 8. And I'll just pause and I'm asking you to look at it because it is awesome. We are told that such will be the strength given the people by God. What's going to happen? These people are going to be like David, the greatest of their kings. These people are going to be built up so that they are like God, that they will actually be like angel of the Lord riding into battle. Do you see this? The Lord God of heaven and earth, he is promising victory, but he is promising to do that by strengthening his people. Now, I hope what we're all seeing there is a message for us as the people of God tonight. Like, surely you get that, do you? Like, surely you see this at least, that if you're a Christian tonight, that even as you've come through the door in this place, surely you understand that you are in a spiritual battle. You must realize that. That you are in a, a spiritual battle where Satan is eager to use everything at his disposal. He will use all the nations of this world against the gospel. Right? Isn't the case as well, though, that very often we feel, the church feels as though we are a hopeless case? That we are weak. That we feel that sometimes that it's almost inevitable that the trends in society in the United Kingdom are going to lead to the, the utter demise of the church. Don't we maybe feel like that? 
And to hear what God is saying here tonight, he's showing us that that is absolutely not the case. I mean, he's showing us that he is a sovereign God. He is showing us that he will absolutely win the victory. And he's actually showing his church that he is going to use her, that he's going to use us to win this victory. Now, we've seen that before in Zechariah. I'll tell you what I want to do, though. I want to make it just a little bit more specific. I want to ask you this. Who is it exactly here that God promises to strengthen? Look at verse 6. God says, on that day, I will make leaders like a brazier in the woodpile. So I just want to stop there. And I want to speak to the younger people of the church just for a moment. Do you see what God is saying in these verses? He's speaking about today. And he is saying that he will raise up leaders. He promises here that he is going to raise up men and women. People who will be like, what does he say? Like flammable material in a fire. And I want to ask you, will that be you? Do you think about that? I mean, what's it going to be as a young person in your life? Is it just going to be the way, I mean, as you look even five years down the line, ten years down the line? Is it just going to be, spiritually speaking, as now? Are you just going to sort of continue with a sense of, kind of apathy towards the gospel? Apathy towards Jesus Christ? Is that going to be it? Or are you even now, even tonight, are you ready to be used by God? Are you ready to be built up? Are you ready to be an explosive force for Christ? And then wait a minute, what's, what's the other specific here? Would you look at verse 8 again? Who's, who's he going to strengthen? Look at verse 8. It's great. He will strengthen, and he promises to strengthen, the feeblest of his people. Can I ask everyone here tonight, is that how you... <laughs> Is that how you feel as you've come into the church? Are you, do you feel as though you are the feeblest of the people of God? You come in here and you are spiritually so fatigued. And does it feel as though that you are really spiritually dead? You are so spiritually weak. You see what you've got? God's promising here. He's going to strengthen you for the fight. You see that? Like what we've got here? He's saying that even the the smallest effort you make this week to seek Jesus Christ, even the smallest effort that you make this week to fight your sin, do you see what that is? It's you taking part in this great, awesome, cosmic victory that God wins over the power of evil. Isn't that marvelous? Do you see what we've got? God is in action. He's in action tonight. He's in action today. And what is he doing? He is bringing us to victory. So God's bringing us to victory. Second thing to notice from these verses is that God is also bringing us, ready for this? He's bringing us to misery. He's brought us to victory, but he's bringing us to misery. What do I mean by that? Okay. We saw in that sort of first section there that, okay, God's promising to do something through his people. 
He's promising to win this great victory. See the second section, if you, if you look at it there, there's a second section, and it's from verse 10 to 14. You notice that? In that section, what God is doing is, is promising uh, to do something in us, not through us, but in us. And he promises to raise up a people who are sorry for their sins. Tell you what, I will approach this. I'm just going to ask just a series of really brief questions about that. And it's a, it is a strange idea, isn't it? God bringing his people to sorrow and contrition. So let's just think about that just for, for a second here. First question, from whom does this sorrow come? Now, do you see it in the text? Look at the, the way it starts in verse 10. I'll give you a moment. The start of verse 10. From where does this sorrow, from whom does this sorrow come? God says, I will, I will pour out on my inhabitants, uh, or the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. If you know your Bibles, you know that that language is covenantal language. It's, it sort of echoes um, language of, you know, new covenant passages elsewhere in Scripture. Do you see the point? Like, we come into church, and I hear this a lot. You hear this a lot, I'm sure. We moan about the church. We moan about what God is not doing. We moan, you know, we sort of complain or we look to other eras and we, we, we see God's not doing much. What are we seeing there? We're seeing that even our sorrow over sin, like even the contrition that we have about our heart, even that isn't off ourselves. Even that is a work that God is doing off his Holy Spirit. It's all, even that sort of godly sorrow, it's off God. The second question, of what does this sorrow consist? Like, what is this sorrow we're talking about? Uh, Many of you know that I recently uh, took part in a funeral. And it was a funeral of a little child just a, a couple of weeks ago. And we're praying about this as a a congregation for the last last wee while. And uh, I, I, you know, I'd love to be able to sort of stand up and say, you know, it was it was fine. Um, And it was, you know, it was as good as these sorts of uh, situations uh, could be. But I have to have to be frank with you, and have to be honest with you that uh, you know it was. Obviously, one of the hardest things that uh, I've had to do, and not so much just like speaking or, or preaching at the, at the funeral, you know, I was seeing the parents on that day. Now, the parents are amazing, and their faith is staggering. But the pain, you can see it, and you know the sort of the anguish that they were in. It was amazing. That is the example that God uses here of nature of the sorrow of his people. Isn't that something? Look at verse ten. What does he say about the they will mourn as one mourns for a for a child? They will grieve 
as one grieves for a firstborn. I mean, do you see the, the point here that God is making? It is that true godly sorrow for sin. It isn't this sort of vague sense of sadness, you know, or a sort of indefinable sort of slight sense of guilt or anything like that. Do you see what God's saying here? You know, true sorrow, godly sorrow for our sin. It is anguish, man. I mean, it is mourning. It is absolute grieving over the wickedness of our hearts. And then the third question, most importantly, I think, look at this. On whom must this sorrow be fixed? Again, you can see the answer from the text. Let me ask you this. From from verse 10, why are these people like that? Like, they're crying, they're wailing. Why? They're mourning because they are at that point looking on the one that they have pierced. Isn't that what it says? They're mourning because they are at that moment looking on the one that they themselves have pierced. This person that they themselves have have caused to die. And because of that, I need to apply this. I need to ask you this question. As a Christian, is any of this familiar to you? I mean, this idea of mourning and real contrition for our sin, is that real to you? Is that a characteristic of your life? Is it? Do you see why it should be? What did we say at the beginning? This is for us. He's looking ahead to us. Don't you see what we're doing tonight? We are looking over the one that we have caused to be pierced. The Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you see the truth in that? Don't you see that it was your sin? My sin, our sin, that caused the Lord Jesus Christ to be sent to the cross. What's the words of that hymn that we always sing in the morning? It was my sin that held him there. Do you see that that is true? What's that painting, Rembrandt painting? Always banging on about this Rembrandt painting. He paints a man holding Jesus Christ up to be crucified. Who does he paint doing it? He paints himself. Do you see that's true? Do you see that it was your sin? It was my sin. It was our sin that saw Jesus Christ be crucified. And that there should cause us sorrow. I mean, we should be grieving. We should be mourning over the wickedness of our heart. It should lead to fighting our sin. It should lead to killing our sin. It should lead to praying for a forgiveness for our sin, shouldn't it? We are looking over the one that we cause to be pierced. Someone else, though, isn't there? Um, You know your Bibles, right? And you know, what's this phrase? They will mourn because they are looking on the one that they have pierced. Where do you see that in Scripture? You've got it in Zechariah here. Where else? Have you got it? Everyone says, I hope. You've got it in John's Gospel. Yeah, they'll look on the one that they have pierced. John quotes this. There's somewhere else though. I'll read it to you. It's Revelation chapter 1. 
and you think about what this means. Revelation 1, on the day that Christ returns, they will mourn. Who will mourn? Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Every eye will see him. Do you see? It means that on the day of Jesus' return, not just the church, but the unbelieving world will mourn because they will look on the one that they have pierced. And you see tonight, don't you, that their mourning will be different to our mourning because it will be the sorrow of regret. Christ will have come and they will see that it is now too late for them. They will see that they can no longer seek forgiveness from God for their sin. And so I want to ask you this. Are you tonight sorry for your sin? I mean, is this mourning over the wickedness of your heart? Is this real for you? I ask you this. If you have never done this before, tonight... Use this opportunity to pray to God about that. That you even tonight, even now, you ask God to do what? To do his work in your heart. Even now, ask God to forgive you for that sin. That sin that has led to the Lord Jesus Christ being pierced for our transgressions. God is bringing us to misery. Third thing. So we've seen that God is bringing us to victory. God is bringing us to misery. Third, God is bringing us to purity. Purity. I I said earlier on that I was really glad that the book of Zechariah doesn't end at chapter 11 because it was pretty pretty heavy going at the uh, end of chapter 11. Aren't you glad that Zechariah does not end there at that point? Because again, you know, all this talk of sort of godly sorrow is pretty heavy going. Well, it doesn't. Thankfully, God doesn't end things there. So we're going into this third section. Do you see this? So we're into chapter 13. And what we see there is how God meets all of the sorrow we see God and how he meets this need that we have because of our wickedness. It's kind of in two parts. Yeah, just before I moved to London, my wife and I took a break uh, to go to the very north of Scotland. Very north of Scotland. Uh, where we're going to go and see family. And uh, during the week, there was a, a special Christian service being held at a local Baptist church, and we were encouraged to go along to this. Uh, so we dutifully obeyed, and we went to this special service. And you know that sort of uh, that feeling you've got if you're in a church service or in a really formal event, and you get the giggles and. <laughs> 
you're trying not to laugh, but you just you're just exploding with laughter, sweating, and that's what happened. Not just to me, but to Catherine as well, because it, <laughs> uh, we're sitting up the front as well. And at one point in this uh, in this service, they invited a couple of people to get up to the front to sing. And we were going to perform this song. And we were killing ourselves laughing. Because it was so bad, you know. So please get better, please get better. And it didn't get better, it just got worse. And we were, you know, crying with laughter. So out of tune. Why am I talking about that? Uh, The song that they were singing, the hymn that they were singing... It's based on exactly what you've got in front of you. In chapter 13 and verse 1. Now look at it. There God shows us where this purity comes from. What does he say he's going to do? He says he's going to open a fountain. So we're like, well, what's this? Open a fountain here. What does it mean? Well, you and I know that in scripture often we find the image of our sin being washed away you got that i mean think about this morning like we saw it this morning we saw the picture that god gives us of that in the baptism of mary cordelia our sin he says can be washed away okay i ask you is it water that washes sin away if you think about the levitical system what was it in scripture that washed sin away? It is, it's blood that washes sin away. So, do you, do you see what Zechariah 13 is pointing us to, especially when we consider, wait a minute, what, if he's, what has he just said? He's just spoken of one who was pierced. What's this point? This is, what does John see in his gospel? What does he tell us? He tells us that on the cross, Jesus was pierced, and what happened? There was a flow. There was a fountain of water. There was a flow. There was a a fountain of blood. Do you see the point here? I will need the sorrow that we have over our sin. All of that is met where? It is met at the, the cross of Jesus Christ. What are the words of that hymn that those people were singing? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. They lose all of their guilty stains. We see where the purity comes from. It comes from the cross. But there's a second that. I want to close with this. Because we've talked a lot about what God does in his work tonight. Here we see what we, the work that you are called to do, the work that we are called to do. I don't know. I mean, if you just look at verse 2, and if you think about what happens from verse 2, God has cleansed the people with a fountain. Now what God does is say that he is going to cleanse the land from idols. Two things, really. Idols... And false 
prophets. They're going to be removed from his people, from Jerusalem and from the land. Now let me remind you what I said earlier on. This is a portion of scripture where Zechariah is looking directly at London City Presbyterian Church. He's looking at you. God is speaking to us here. Now do you see what the message is? You and I are supposed to be a people who are pursuing in our lives cleansing. And I'll ask you this. Are we? You know, in your life, my life, are we people who are actively pursuing purity? Holiness? Cleansing? Is that true? Let me, I tell you what. Let me change the question. Will you do that? Like even starting now, going into this week ahead, will you consider what it is that is dearest to your heart? And will you ensure that nothing supplants Jesus as the number one superior affection of your life? Will you go into this week, will you resolve not to have any false prophets, false teachers, nothing that in any way detracts from the word of God? Will you do that? Will you this week pursue with all your might cleansing? Holiness, godliness. I'll end like this. Have you been cleansed by the blood of Jesus? Simple question. But have you? I'm talking about a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Has that washed your sin away? Has it? If so... Do you see what God is doing? He is saving you. What is God doing? It's not the question we're asking. What is he doing? He's taking you home. He's taking you to glory. He's taking you to be with himself. Isn't that marvelous? That, friends, is God's victory. That is what God is doing today. Let's pray.